We are in the middle of chapter 41, and this is a pivotal chapter in Tanya. This is a chapter that has fame for a reason. This is a chapter that a lot of people study before davening just the first section, and it's meant to put us into that mode where we can truly surrender to Hashem and truly become, in that way, you know, people are so worried to surrender. In that way of surrender, we become huge. We don't become small. We become huge. Instead of being a tiny little being who's clinging onto his own ego, we become a channel for the infinite. And we just started the chapter by saying that after everything that we learned about kavana and it needs to be with love and with fear. And primarily we were focused on love, that we do this mitzvah because we want to attach to Hashem. After having learned all of that, the Altar Rebbe said, but, Biram, however, there is something you need to know. And that is that fear comes first. Love isn't enough. And fear comes first. It is the first step. It is the foundation. And it is the root of everything. All of our service has to be based on fear. Fear and acceptance of the heavenly kingdom. It's the first step. It's what supports everything. It's what pervades everything. And we started off with this meditation to think about, even if we couldn't arouse full feelings in our heart, but at least in our mind, to think about the vastness of Hashem's kingship. And it extends from the highest worlds to the lowest worlds. And nevertheless, he disregards everything. And when we say everything, that is huge to consider the higher worlds and the lower worlds and the created beings in each of them. And the enormous properties that they all have, the enormous character, and that is not important to him. What's important to him? He uniquely confers his kingship upon the Jewish people as a whole, but then upon you in particular. That Hashem is waiting for each of us as an individual, as if it is just us and Hashem, that's it. It's as if there's just Hashem and me and everything else is just shadows in the background. And what does Hashem want from me? Hashem wants me to accept his kingship. It's as if Hashem is saying, if you don't accept me, I'm not king. Because it's not something that it's imposed upon us. This is not imposed upon us. Malchus means we accepted it. Hashem said, I want you to accept me as king. And the line that we ended off with was a line from the Talmud. We're on page four in the printed booklets, or at least in my printed booklet. And the Talmud says, For a man is obligated to say, For my sake, the world was created. So the Talmud asks a question. Why was Adam created alone? Hashem created one person originally. It was an androgynous being, actually. It was Adam and Chava back to back. One person, Adam. Why did Hashem create one person? Why didn't he create a population? And that's because a pers- to teach a person that each man is obligated to say, for my sake, the world was created. Just like Adam was the only man. And so obviously it was his job to call Hashem king. 
and to take care of this world and bring it to perfection, that hasn't changed. There are billions of people on planet Earth and yet that hasn't changed. Each of us is obligated to say, for my sake, the world was created. And this gives us a whole new perspective on accepting Hashem's kingship. Because when you tell someone, you know, you have to have Kabbalah's all, you have to have acceptance of the heavenly kingdom, then somebody can think, wow, that's, that's repressive. I, I don't have freedom for myself. I can't think whatever I want. I can't say whatever I want. I can't do whatever I want. I just have to do whatever Hashem wants. How can I be happy? That's not the meditation that the Alter Rebbe gave us. How does the Alter Rebbe help us arrive at acceptance of the heavenly kingdom? By giving us this meditation. Look what Hashem created. Vaster than our mind can fathom. All of that, He disregards. He uniquely confers His kingship upon the Jewish people. And then more particularly, He uniquely confers His kingship upon you. And when a person prays and they say, they bless Hashem, you know, right before the Shema, and they say, the one who chooses the Jewish people with love. Primarily, he thinks of himself. Thank you for choosing me with love. It's so unbelievable to think that the entire universe lies uniquely in each of our hands. And that brings incredible joy. There's this story, um, Rabbi Yosef Jacobson wrote this up in an article. He interviewed Rabbi Zalman Posner, Oliver Shalom, who was a main player in this story. And this was in 1968. In 1968, December 25, three astronauts made 10 orbits around the moon and came back two days later, December 27th. And that was huge. Now, Everybody knew about this. This was world famous. What wasn't so world famous was Rabbi Zalman Posner, a Chabad Shliach, intellectual, a big chassid, was interviewed on the radio by a popular Jewish talk show host, Barry Farber, and this was December 26, 1968. Now, in the interview, Barry Farber asks Rabbi Posner, how does the Torah dare interfere with the personal lives of people? Are you going to tell me that if somebody decided to eat pork or shrimp or lobster or something that the Torah forbids, they're going to get 39 lashes. Actually, he said 38, but the correct number is 39. 39 lashes for eating something not kosher? How dare the Torah interfere with the personal lives of people? And Rabbi Posner said like this, look, you have to understand, in order for somebody to get lashes for eating non-kosher food, a crazy amount of conditions had to be met. First of all, the members of the court had to have smicha, which means that they were ordained rabbi after rabbi, all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu, who was ordained by Hashem. That chain was unfortunately broken 1,500 years ago, so no rabbis today have true smicha. That's A. Second of all, in order for him to get those lashes, he had to be warned by two witnesses who are not related to each other or to him. And they had to give him a warning and they had to say, 
you know that you're about to eat pork. And pork is forbidden by the Torah. And if you're going to eat pork, you're going to get 39 lashes. If he goes ahead and eats the pork, he doesn't get the lashes yet. He has to admit that he heard what they said. And he can't just say, "Uh uh-huh, I hear you. He had to say, yes, I hear that if I eat pork, I'm going to get 39 lashes. And then he has to eat it within three seconds of the warning. If he waited five seconds, then he could have said, I forgot. And he wouldn't be held liable. And then if he actually gets to that whipping bench and he breaks free and runs out, the court is not allowed to bring him back and whip him. He's free. He's not going to get whipped. So you have to understand that basically nobody ever got lashes for eating non-kosher food. And if they did, it was like once in a hundred years. That was his response. Now, actually, if somebody, I don't know if he said this or this is part of the article, but he said, if somebody met all those conditions that he was in front of two witnesses, he acknowledged their warning, he ate it within three seconds, they had to be a real moron. And if somebody is a real moron, then they don't get lashes because they're mentally incompetent. So they're exonerated from punishment. So how impossible was it for somebody to actually get those lashes for eating non-kosher food? Now, the Rebbe was not planning on for bringing that Shabbos, but he did because of current events. It was such a huge thing that these astronauts actually went to outer space and circled the moon 10 times and came back safely to planet Earth. And so that Shabbos, December 28, 1968, the Rebbe spoke about what happened. And he said that the, Rabbi Zalman Posner was at the Fabringen. And the Rebbe said that there was a rabbi who was interviewed and asked by a radio talk show host, how dare the Torah interfere with the personal lives of others? And the Rebbe went on to say that the rabbi answered him, basically, it's impossible for somebody to have gotten those lashes. And the Rebbe said, while there was a grain of truth to his answer, it was not satisfactory because even if it happens once in a hundred years, but it's not supposed to happen, if it's considered barbaric, then even once in a hundred years is wrong. Is it right or is it wrong? Even if it couldn't even happen because of all the impossible obstacles on the way, but if it could happen once in a hundred years and it's wrong, then there's a problem. But the Rebbe said, we have to take a lesson from current events. The Baal Shem Tov says that from whatever we see or hear, we have to take a lesson in serving Hashem. And the Rebbe spoke about these astronauts that circled the moon. And he said, do you know what kind of instructions they had in order to be on that spaceship and do their mission? What kind of shoes to wear? What kind of clothes to wear? How much food to eat? What kind of food to eat? Even how to use the bathroom. Everything down to the smallest details, when to sit, how to sleep. Think, you know what was invested in these people to go to outer space? Hundreds of thousands of people were involved globally on this mission. Scientists for many years. Billions of dollars were poured into this project. Countries were personally invested, maybe everybody in the world or almost everybody in the world. What if somebody, one of these astronauts decided, you know what, I'd like to have a cigarette. And he lights a cigarette. Should he be penalized? It's, it's, who's going to mix into his private affairs, right? 
He can do whatever he wants. He cares for a cigarette. He can have a cigarette now. No, he cannot have a cigarette now. If he has a cigarette now, he puts in danger the lives of three people, billions of dollars, years of research of hundreds of thousands of people, the hopes and dreams of billions of people for what? All because he can't ignore a temptation? Of course he needs to be penalized. And the Rebbe says that's exactly how it applies to the, to the question that the man posed about eating non-kosher. Every one of our thoughts, speech, and action are not just somebody's private affair. They matter to Hashem himself. When Hashem tells a Jew, you need to eat this and don't eat that, that's because this is crucial to our mission in life. This is because the whole world depends on us and in our little choices, everything is affected. It's so hard for us to see it. But that is the truth. Hashem uniquely confers his kingship upon each one of us. And he charges us with a mission of bringing heaven and earth together. And to say, you know what? I'm sorry, but I care for this right now. The person wants to eat non-kosher food and whose business is it? Oh, it's everybody's business. The entire universe depends on that choice. So is it a huge responsibility? Of course it's a huge responsibility. But do you know how powerful that is? It's enormous. You think about Bibi Netanyahu, who ran, I don't know how many times to be the prime minister of Israel. Is he crazy? Why do you want to be the prime minister of Israel? Do you know how many restrictions there are if you're the prime minister? Look, any simple citizen can pick up the phone and they can say, bomb, 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 bomb. They're free to say it how many times they want. Bibi Netanyahu can't do that. If he picks up this phone and says, bomb, 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 a bomb is going to fall somewhere. He is so restricted. He can't say whatever he wants. Yeah, he can't say whatever he wants, but he still runs to be the prime minister. Do you know why he runs to be the prime minister? Because he becomes so powerful in that position. So here we can say, oh my goodness, I have to accept Hashem's kingship. And every little detail matters. That's true. While in a very myopic viewpoint, that is limiting. If you look at it from a larger space and a bird's eye view, it is so freeing. It means that our actions are so powerful that they matter not just to our next door neighbor and not just to the people down the block and not just even to the people in our country. They matter to Hashem himself and all the universes are affected by our one action, by our one thought, by the one word that we say, that's how powerful we are. And in fact, this is what the Rambam writes in Hilchai Teshuvah. This is from Hilchas Teshuva, the third chapter, the fourth halacha. A person should always see himself as half meritorious and half guilty, and the entire world as half meritorious and half guilty, so that when he transgresses one transgression, he tips the balance for himself and for the entire world to the side of guilt and causes it destruction. And when he does a single mitzvah, he tips the balance for himself and for the entire world to the side of merit and causes salvation for himself and for the entire world. So how powerful is that? To be so important that the entire universe depends on us and Hashem uniquely waits for me to call him king. How potent is that? So we're on page four of 24.
A Jew should remind himself that the whole purpose and intent of creation, namely Hashem's sovereignty, relates to him specifically that Hashem become king over him. The realization that Hashem bestows his kingship upon each individual in particular touches a responsive cord within a person. He is then more apt to demand of himself that he accept the heavenly yoke. I read this incredible article on Chabad.org by Dr. Arnie Gottfried, and it's called Atanya for Professor Wheeler. Professor John Wheeler was a world-famous physicist. He's the one who coined the term black hole. A number of his students were Nobel Prize laureates. A tremendous thinker, he collaborated with Niels Bohr. The Reader's Digest had an article quoting him, and Rabbi David Shachat from Toronto called up Professor Arner Gottfried and said, Dr. Wheeler is quoted in the Reader's Digest. I want you to get in touch with him. I want you to tell him about the seven Noahide laws. I want you to give him a tanya or something. So he's like, why is Rabbi Shachat reading the Reader's Digest? How does he know about it? And it turns out that in the Reader's Digest, they're quoting this physicist. Is man an unimportant bit of dust on an unimportant planet in an unimportant galaxy somewhere in the vastness of space? Asked Wheeler. No, the necessity to produce life lies at the center of the universe's whole machinery and design. Without an observer, there are no laws of physics. Why should the universe exist at all? The explanation must be so simple and so beautiful that when we see it, we will all say, how could it have been otherwise? Still needed today is a thinker who can lead the way sure-footedly through this world of mystery to insights overlooked or deemed impossible. I don't know how to. I don't know anyone who does. I can only say that when you see one who does, treasure him or her. This is Professor Wheeler. So Arnie Gottfried is like, okay, that's it. We're getting him a Tanya. But he couldn't even track him down. Till he found him, he was six months away on an island doing research. He gets in touch with the secretary. He mails the Tanya and marks some important passages for him to look at. And he said, you must get this to Professor Wheeler. And she said, listen to me. We must get dozens of manuscripts a week. And each one is labeled, don't take your next, next breath until you have shown this to Professor Wheeler. But somehow the Tanya makes it to Professor Wheeler. And he writes back a letter to Dr. Gottfried. And this is what he writes. It is for me a precious remembrance of the life and teachings of the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe to have as a kind gift from you the Tanya of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe. I thank you especially for marking passages that I might study with a special care. You already have some notion of my sympathy for these general questions and what I have said or written about creation. For example, in the enclosed three pages of a paper of mine given at a joint meeting of the Royal Society and the American Philosophical Society. And here we have it. A great mind who knows that man has some significance beyond what people are going to say, beyond what scientists say. He says, I don't have the answer, but somebody does. And whoever does, treasure them. Well, we have the answer right here. Hashem has chosen the Jewish people to call him king. Hashem has chosen uniquely me to call him king. The whole universe depends on me and everything lies in my hand. What I say matters. What I do matters. What I think matters. Matters to Hashem himself and to the destiny of creation. So what's going to be the practical application of knowing this? Vehu 
גם הוא מקבל עליו מלכוסי, להיית מלך עליו ולעבדי ולעשה רציני בכל מיני עבדת אבן. And he, for his part, accepts his kingship upon himself, that he be king over him, to serve him, and to do his will in all kinds of servile work. This acceptance of the yoke of divine service is required of all Jews. Knowing that Hashem is counting on me, what do I do in response? I accept you as king. I'll do whatever you want. All kinds of servile work, yes, because you want me to call you king, I am your servant. And actually, I was speaking this over with a close friend of mine, the, chap- the ideas in this chapter, because they're so huge. And I was like, imagine, could you call yourself Hashem's slave? And she was like, slave? I hate that word. And then she was like, you know what? It actually sounds so good. It sounds so good if I just call myself Hashem's slave. It's so freeing because if you think about it, you're going to be a slave to something. People who consider themselves very independent are servants to something. They're slaves to money. They're slaves to work. They're slaves to popular opinion. They're slaves to science. All those things are limited. But if we simply call ourselves a servant of Hashem, we are not limited. Then we don't care what popular opinion is. And we're not bogged down by the fads of the time because there's one truth and that's Hashem. And we are his servant. We're prepared to do whatever he wants. In fact, in the Hallel, we say, Ana Hashem ki ani avdecha. And people translate that a lot as, please Hashem, for I am your servant. That would be the correct translation if Ana was spelled Aleph, Nun Aleph. That's not how Ana is spelled in Hallel. It's spelled Aleph Nun He, which means we're. The previous Rebbe points this out, and he says it means, we're Hashem, where do you want me to be? Because I am your servant. And that's the message here. Hashem is relying on each of us, and we, for our part, respond. I'm going to be your servant, and I'm going to do all kinds of servile work. The Rebbe points out that the Alter Rebbe will now go on to say that the above meditation aimed at awakening innate awe in one's mind does not suffice. A person must also realize that Hashem not only bestows his kingship upon him in a general manner, but that he does so in a, so to speak, personal manner. In the Alter Rebbe's words, V'hine Hashem nitzav alav, umulai chol ha'aretz kivaydei And behold, God himself stands over him. And the whole world is full only with his glory. And not only being omnipresent does he see everything, but moreover, he scrutinizes him in particular. So knowing everything that we know, but we have to realize it's so personal. Hashem is literally standing opposite me and looking at my every action. Every little thing that I do counts. The Rebbe in speaking about this says, when somebody eats, Hashem is not just looking to see, is he making a bracha first? Does he first say the blessing? But Hashem is watching. Is he paying attention to the meaning of the words? And when he eats, what are his intentions? Are his intentions that he has to serve Hashem? And when the body is not properly watered or fed, then it becomes disoriented. So we got to take care of it so that I'm not disoriented in serving Hashem. Or does he have a pleasure-seeking agenda? All of this is important to Hashem. And again, it could be a lot to swallow. It could be like, oh my gosh, you mean it? Listen, it's the truth. 
So either we could ignore it or we could pay attention to it. And the more attention that we pay to this truth, the more freeing and joy producing it is. Initially, it's very different than, thing than anything we know. But when we really think about it, it becomes true freedom that I am a servant only to Hashem. He relies on me to call him king. And every little thing that I do is important to him. He is standing over me and he is watching my actions. And searches his reins and his heart, meaning his innermost thoughts and emotions to see if he is serving him as fitting. It's Hashem and me. That's it. And he wants to know, do I think in a way that makes him happy? Do I speak in a way that makes him happy? What are my intentions? Hashem is concerned only with me. How incredible is that? And what's the practical application now? Therefore, he must serve in his presence with awe and fear. Meaning, notes the Rebbe, not merely like one who is located in the king's domain, but moreover, like one standing before the king. You can say, yeah, Hashem is king. He's everywhere. It's not just everywhere. He's right here. And when I'm serving, I'm serving in his presence. If you're serving in the king's country, then you may not be filled with awe. But if you're standing right before the king, you are filled with awe. And that's the meditation that we have now. In fact, up until these words, until I made lifting Hamelach, this is the part of the chapter that people do every single day before prayer. They just read the beginning of chapter 41 until like one standing before a king, and it's meant to inspire awe. When we truly become aware of Hashem's imminent presence, that he is concerned with me, just with me. Out of everything that he has created, he's concerned just with me. And everything that I do matters to him. The things that I think, my intentions, my inner processes and desires, it's all important to him. He sees it all. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to stand with awe before him, like somebody who is standing right before the king. One must meditate profoundly and at length on this concept, according to the cap- capacity of apprehension of his brain and thought, and the time available to devote to this contemplation. So, yeah, we could just read chapter 41 before we pray. But if we don't actually delve deeply into it, it's not going to have the desired effect. The Altar says you need to delve deeply into this. And you need to allot it time. Spend time on it. How much time? As much time as you have available. And Rabbi Steinsatz comments something very interesting. He says, just like you have to tell the Bainini what to think about and how to apply himself, you also have to tell him how long. Because he's the average person and so he doesn't know. Obviously, this meditation is endless. It can go on forever. So do it in the amount of time that you have. And what does it mean when it says, spend a length of time on it? For everybody, it's different. 
but you can't imagine the profound difference that five minutes make. Five minutes. If a person spends five minutes delving deeply into these thoughts that we thought about, about Hashem's kingship extends from the higher world to the lower worlds, that he disregards it all and uniquely bestows his kingship upon the Jewish people and more particularly upon me. And he's literally standing over me and watching me to see, am I serving him as fitting? Thinking about that deeply in a way that it matters to me. Everybody's different. We all have the language that speaks to us. Five minutes can make the most profound difference. Our sages say, Every little coin adds up to a huge sum. It's like putting money in a savings account. Five minutes a day can literally change someone's life. And I see a question here. What book, what is chapter 41? It's chapter 41 in Tanya that we're studying right now. The beginning of this chapter, until Ka'amid Lifnei HaMelech, people do this meditation every single day to come to this profound awareness of Hashem's imminent presence and my incredible significance in fulfilling the purpose of creation. And because the Benoni has such a wide range, there are people who have a penchant for abstractions and there are people who can only think about simple things. The Alter Rebbe gives us a meditation that is simple enough for a child to relate to, that you're standing in the presence of Hashem, that He is King and He wants you to call Him King. And in fact, the Rebbe chose 12 verses from the Torah and also from sayings of our sages for children to memorize. They're called, they're known as the Yudbeis Pesukim Umamari Chazal. One of these 12 passages is, are these lines from Tanya. The Rebbe wanted every single child to have these words in mind. And they are, V'hine Hashem Nitzav Alav, Umleichal Arts Kevaydei Umabit Alav, Uveichen Klayes Valev Im Aivdei Karaoi. And behold, God himself stands over him, and the whole world is full only with his glory. And not only being omnipresent does he see everything, but moreover, he scrutinizes him in particular and searches his reins and heart, meaning his innermost thoughts and emotions, to see if he is serving him as is fitting. Just those lines, all young children in Chabad schools memorize that. It's one of the 12 passages that they have in their back pocket. Because when you carry that in your back pocket, then you have what to call upon when you're in a challenge. If mommy asks you something and you feel like you're going to say something that isn't true, Hashem is standing over you. If you feel like you're going to take something that you shouldn't take, but Hashem is standing over you. Having that memorized and in your back pocket is extremely empowering in serving Hashem. He should meditate profoundly on this concept according to the capacity of apprehension of his brain and, and thought and the time available to devote to this contemplation, when should somebody think these thoughts? The Alter Rebbe says like this, Before he engages in the study of Torah or before the performance of a mitzvah, such as before putting on his talus and tefillin. So the point being made over here is that this is not just a general meditation that we have in mind. It is something that serves us even in doing a positive mitzvah. Because remember we said at the beginning of the chapter that normally love prompts positive mitzvahs and fear helps us stay away from negative mitzvahs. So because we love Hashem, we're going to do a positive mitzvah. Because we're afraid of Him, we're going to abstain from doing a transgression. However, the Alter Rebbe said, 
Love alone is not enough in order to do a positive mitzvah. We have to have a basic level of fear. To get to that basic level of fear, which was not to rebel against Hashem, we had to have this meditation in mind. To think about Hashem's great kingship that extends from the higher worlds to the lower worlds. And he uniquely confers his kingship upon me all the way until we got to the point where he is standing before the king. Think about this, not just generally. Think about it before you do a mitzvah. It will infuse your mitzvah with awe. The altar Rebbe brings two examples, talis and tefillin. And that's because the Rebbe points out these are mitzvahs that are done at the beginning of the day. So before we pray, that is a perfect time to think about these ideas. What a great way to start our day. We're, we get up in the morning. We, we say maida'ani. We thank Hashem for giving us our neshama back. We wash our hands, netilat yadayim which actually, besides the fact that it gets rid of the impurity that comes overnight, but also we are like, this is what it says in Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, we are like Kohanim serving in the Beis HaMikdash. And just like the Kohanim wash their hands and feet in order to prepare for service of Hashem, in the morning we wash our hands to prepare to serve Hashem. And then we pray. Before we pray, we put ourselves in this mindset. Don't ever forget the truth of reality. There is only one reality, and that is Hashem. And He cares just about me. He wants to know, do I call Him King? And so me, for my part, I accept Him. I call Him King. I'm going to do whatever He asks of me to do, all kinds of servile work. That's what I think about before I do any mitzvah. Now, the Altar Rebbe is now going to describe additional details on how to bring on fear of Hashem. He should also reflect how the light of the blessed Ainsof, which encompasses all worlds and pervades all worlds, and which is identical with the higher will. Previous chapters have stated that God's will is the source of the life force that animates all worlds in both a transcendental and an indwelling mode. So you think about the light of the Ein Sof, which brings everything into existence. What is it? Hashem's will. Hashem's will is what brings everything into existence. Now, listen to this. And this is an idea that the Altar brings up a number of times in Tanya. He brings it up in chapter 5, chapter 23, chapter 35, chapter 37, and now again. And what's so amazing is that each time we look at this idea, it's meant to bring out something else in us. So we're looking at this incredible, tremendous idea. Every time I encounter this idea, I'm just blown away again. It just, it's tremendous. Back to this tremendous idea, and it's here to bring us something else. So we're thinking about this. The light of the Ein Sof, which brings everything into creation, is Hashem's will. Hashem's will brings everything into existence. Who melubash hatayra. This divine will is clothed within the letters and the wisdom of the Torah. In the very letters of the Torah that the person utters and in the Torah wisdom that he comprehends, 
God's will is to be found. As explained in chapter 4, the divine will clothe itself in the ink and parchment of the Torah scroll and similarly clothe itself in the wisdom of the Torah. Thus, when the wisdom of the Torah determines that a certain object is either kosher or invalid, it is expressing the divine will. Accordingly, before a person commences his Torah study, he should ponder on how the ain't so fly. The divine will is vested in the letters and wisdom of the Torah that he is now about to study. Let's just remind ourselves that the divine will is in everything because that's what brings everything into existence. In chapter 35, the Alter Rebbe writes, God's will is the source of life for all the worlds and the creatures. However, how does it come? It descends. It descends to them by means of many contractions and by concealment of the countenance. So everything comes about through the divine will. But how? Through many concealments and contractions, it has become diminished so greatly to bring everything into existence. When it comes to Torah, when it comes to the mitzvahs, Hashem's will is invested in there purely with no diminutions whatsoever. And yes, the term that the Alter Rebbe uses is tzimtzum, contracted. But contracted in the way of compressed. He has taken his infinite self and compressed it within the letters and the wisdom of the Torah. The Alter Rebbe writes in chapter 4, Tzimtzim HaKadosh Baruch Hu Ritzayne V'chachmasse B'tar Yag Mitzvah Satayra U'v'hilchai Sehen the Holy One, blessed be He, has compressed His will and wisdom within the 613 commandments of the Torah and in their laws, as well as within the combination of the letters of the scripture, Tanakh, and in the exposition thereof, which are to be found in the Agadot and Midrashim of our rabbis of blessed memory. So before we study Torah, before we do a mitzvah, we think about how the blessed life, light of the Ein Sof Baruch Hu, Hashem, His will is clothed within the letters and the wisdom of the Torah. And you notice that the Alter Rebbe uses two terms. He uses letters and he uses wisdom. We came across this idea before because when it comes to Torah Shebech the written Torah, the holiness inheres in the letters. If somebody reads words from Tanakh, from the Torah, from the Nevi'im, from the Kesuvim, from Tehillim, which is part of Kesuvim, they don't understand what they're saying. Nevertheless, they are fulfilling the mitzvah of Torah study because the holiness inheres in the letters. They're literally expressing Hashem's will through uttering those holy words of Tanakh. And when it comes to the oral Torah, the holiness inheres in the wisdom. Of course, in the written Torah, the holiness inheres in the wisdom as well. But when it comes to the oral Torah, the concepts are what convey the holiness. And when someone understands a concept from the Agada, from the Midrash, from the teachings of Chazal, from Halacha, when we understand Hashem's wisdom, we are literally uniting with His will. Could you imagine? He compressed Himself and put Himself within the letters and the wisdom of the Torah. When we study His Torah, when we read His holy words, when we think about his wisdom, we are fusing with the divine will. And the Altar is going to explain to us that that inspires tremendous awe. So that was about Torah study. And now we're going to look at the mitzvah as well, that he is enclosed in the mitzvah. 
Or if his meditation takes place before he puts on his talis and tefillin, he should contemplate how the divine will is clothed in these tzitzis and tefillin, it being Hashem's will that a Jew wears them. And so this applies to any mitzvah. Here we're speaking about tefillin, we're speaking about talis. It applies to any mitzvah. Before we do any mitzvah, such as giving tzedakah, lighting Shabbos candles, whatever the mitzvah is, lulav and esrog, before we do a mitzvah, we think about the fact that Hashem's will is compressed within this mitzvah. And what happens? And through his recitation or study of the Torah, or by his wearing tzitzis and tefillin, he draws upon himself his blessed light. That is, over the part of God above, his soul, which abides in his body and, and animates it. So what happens is a person meditates that these words of Torah that I am studying, that this mitzvah that I am about to do is literally the will of Hashem. And when I study his Torah and when I fulfill his will, I'm drawing down his blessed light upon me, meaning upon my divine soul, which is within my body. And the Altarva specifies that is within his body because there's two aspects to the soul. There's the root of the soul, which is beyond being clothed within the body. And then there is the part of the soul, which is clothed within the body, which is one with Hashem, but loses focus of that, unfortunately. Doesn't feel its oneness on a regular basis. And when a person studies Torah, and when a person does a mitzvah, they draw down the light of Hashem upon the part of the soul with, that's within the, their body. This he does with the intent that, so that it may be absorbed and nullified in his blessed light. So when we study Torah, when we do a mitzvah, we become cognizant of the fact that Hashem's will is compressed and enclosed within it. And when I become part of that experience, what happens? I'm drawing his light over my soul that's within my body. My soul that's within my body doesn't necessarily feel its connection, total, utter surrender to Hashem. It doesn't. But when I bring it down upon it, it becomes subsumed within its source. Think about that tiny drop of water that becomes dropped into the ocean. It now has become part of the vaster ocean. Think about that little flame that became part of a huge bonfire. It has now become part of the huge bonfire. Now, these are th small things that have become absorbed within something much greater than themselves. But here we're talking about a much greater level of nullification. We're talking about something being subsumed within its source. These are profound meditations that we did in chapters 20 and 21. And when something is subsumed within its source, it really loses any separate identity. It just becomes part of its source. And that's what happens when we study Torah and we do a mitzvah. What are we doing? We're giving our soul the opportunity to totally surrender to Hashem. That's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about totally surrendering to Him becoming in awe of him, accepting the yoke of heaven, and totally surrendering to him. A mitzvah offers us that incredible opportunity. What is a mitzvah? A mitzvah is the will of Hashem. 
Hashem's will that brings everything into existence is clothed within the Torah, is clothed within the mitzvah. When I say his holy words, when I think his holy ideas, when I do his holy act, I'm drawing down his blessed light upon that part of my soul within me that doesn't necessarily feel the surrender on a regular basis. What happens when that tiny little spark becomes subsumed within its source? It loses its identity. It totally surrenders. It becomes nullified and surrendered within Hashem himself. That's the opportunity that a mitzvah offers offers us. The individual's intent then is that the affirmation study and performance have an effect on his soul. And coming up, and we're not going to do it this class, but we'll talk about it next class, we're going to look at individual mitzvahs and what effect individual mitzvahs have in our soul. Because the general intent of every act of Torah study and the general intent of every act of mitzvah performance is this. I am becoming subsumed within Hashem. I, how do I approach the mitzvah? I approach the mitzvah that Hashem is asking me to call him king. He is searching my heart and reins. He is right over me. I'm standing in his presence. I'm going to do whatever he wants. That's how I approach a mitzvah. That's what I'm going to think about before I do my mitzvah. What else do I think about? I'm going to think about that Hashem's will is compressed within the Torah, that it's compressed within the mitzvah. When I study Torah, when I do a mitzvah, I'm drawing down Hashem, his blessed light over my soul that doesn't necessarily feel subsumed within him. And what happens when my soul becomes absorbed within its source? It loses its identity. I'm drawing down the source of my soul upon my soul. It's like dropping that little drop in the ocean. It's like putting that flame into the larger fire and much more than that. My soul becomes utterly subsumed within Hashem, completely surrendered to Him. That mitzvah offers me the opportunity to truly surrender to the will of Hashem. So we finished class for today and I'm opening up for questions and discussion.